Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com and the Boyd Group International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. Visit AirlinesConfidential.com to attend at a reduced rate. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. I don't know what the statute of limitations is on how long you're not the CEO before passengers behaving badly stops being your fault. But we're going to find out this week. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Well, you know, everyone's looking at the names of things today and saying, can we be more respectful in the way we name things? And one of those is George Washington University, who for a long time has been known as the Colonials. But now many students and others are saying we should change that name. So I think they should ask one of the most famous alums what he thinks the name should be. And I'm talking, of course, about Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Oh, I sure hope they can do better than that when it comes to famous alums. Thank you, Ben. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we're going to talk a look at whether – There's more that meets the eye to some of those recent network moves and comments by airlines. And in passengers behaving badly this week, well, let's just say I'm glad I'm no longer the CEO who has to manage what happened at one airport. It's crazy. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, we've been hearing the dismal earnings news from airlines. That's no surprise. I mean, nobody expected April through June of this year to be particularly profitable. The question, of course, has been how things look going forward. And that's where it's not looking so good. These days, airlines adjust their schedules much more dynamically than usual as they get close to departure. I mean, in normal times, not much changes once you're inside oh, three or four months before a flight. Not the case anymore. Ben, I've been keeping an eye on Sirium's schedule data for August. And just to give you an example of how things seem to be deteriorating, as of two weeks ago, comparing next month, so August of this year to August of last year, of 2019, U.S. airlines were planning to fly 68% as many domestic seats this August as they flew last August. In other words, a 32% cut. Look, of course, at any other time in history, that would be terrible. But for the COVID era, that was actually pretty hopeful. I mean, as recently as May, they had whacked like three quarters of their domestic schedules, flying just a quarter of what they usually fly. And of course, forget international, that's worse. Uh, So to see August back up to 68% actually looked like good news. But by last week, that 68% figure was just 65%. Now it has slipped to 63%. It does vary widely by airline. Among the big four, Southwest has actually added some routes and as of now is back up to 83% for August of what it flew last August. Again, that's scheduled domestic seats. Uh, United's at just 48%. Ben, a couple questions. First, Brett Snyder of the Cranky Flyer blog noted that Southwest has added a few routes, but I was more interested in what he noted they just cut 
rather late in the game. Uh, so here are the cuts that he noticed in terms of entire nonstop Southwest routes that are now gone. Uh, Boise to Spokane, three from Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale to Austin, Fort Lauderdale, Kansas City, Fort Lauderdale, Pittsburgh, uh, two from Houston to both Burbank in Southern California and to Omaha and Tampa to Austin. So another way to look at it is it's actually two Austin routes to both Fort Lauderdale and Tampa. The reason I find that interesting is because Southwest, Ben, is so conservative about cutting anything. Uh, usually I'd say they're the most patient airline about just kind of seeing things through, waiting. Do you think it's fair to read into that, that these routes must have been absolutely awful because you know, nothing's <laughs> great right now? And, and then what I'm wondering is, do you think we can extrapolate that they're just kind of marginal routes anyway? Or do you think it's COVID-specific stuff? You know, Fort Lauderdale with obviously the outbreak in South Florida right now. Good question, Seth. And, you know, when you look at these, there's some that I don't think of as marginal routes, some that you do. Boise, Spokane, for example, that's kind of small city to small city. So that either works or it doesn't. And my my guess is it just wasn't working. And they probably don't have a lot of competition in that route. You know, the only possibility I would think would be Alaska Alaska and Alaska's Horizon, their commuter network. Right, right. Basically might do that. The Fort Lauderdale routes, at least to uh, Austin and Pittsburgh, they have Spirit as competitors generally, but right. Kansas City, that's not the case. Maybe that's something Kansas City specific. Houston's a big place for them, but that doesn't mean everything works. And, you know, they fly a lot to L.A., so maybe Burbank was just uh, duplicative of yeah. other things they fly in Southern California. And so my guess is these routes are pretty bad, and they are looking at – you know, maybe something they would have held on to as a competitive issue if they're flying against Spirit or someone else, or as a it's you know it's it's close enough. Maybe that sort of hurdle isn't good enough anymore. You know, when when there's still planes on the ground, even in their case, not flying their full schedule yet, still have planes on the ground, still paying for employees who aren't fully productive yet. They're saying, look, we just have to have a higher hurdle for what we'll accept to keep a route in place. And I think that that's why you see these kinds of things being trimmed. Every airline's trimming this kind of stuff. And when you say trimming, the reality is they've added back where they think the best flying is going to be in this demand-reduced time. And they don't, the airlines just don't know what's perfect about that. So they try adding some things. If the bookings are there, they'll keep them. If they're not seeing the bookings, they're going to redeploy those planes. And what's totally different here over the past month, I think we mentioned this last week, is how you see how you really can't run from the outbreaks. Uh, up until about a month ago, there was this thinking, well, let's just kind of steer clear of New York City at the time and things like that. Look at the... Heartland, markets connecting the Heartland to Florida, as JetBlue did, uh, Allegiant added back almost all its flying uh, of that kind of flying. And, and now we see that, well, you know, Florida obviously is, is, is where there, there's, there's a huge outbreak, uh, Texas, Arizona, all the rest of it. And so it, it seems like it's going to be trickier until there's a vaccine or until just things in general get better, uh, even a month or two out, just hard to say where things are. Uh, going to be better. Uh, and Southwest, of course, said it wouldn't rule out furloughs. And you know, let's hope they can avoid that. I mean, let's hope everybody could somehow avoid that, although it's it's doubtful. But just regardless of what ends up happening at Southwest, just the fact that it 
can't rule out for all those. That it's considering that for the first time in its half century history just tells you how bad things are. And then among the big three U.S. global airlines, American seems to have a different philosophy than Delta and United. Ben, I want to ask you whether this is really such a big deal or if it's more just semantics. American CEO Doug Parker was quoted in a Wall Street Journal story last week saying, quote, let's go fly for God's sake. That quote was in the headline too and a lot of other media picked up the story. Let's go fly for God's sake. Parker said he wished the airline had flown more in June than it did. In other words, the increase in demand in June outpaced the increase in supply that month, even of course both were well off pre-COVID levels. He's clearly worried about the prospect of not flying enough to support all the employees American has. Uh, You could really read that in his comments. He's trying to keep figure out how to keep people employed, but in a sustainable way, especially with October 1st coming, that's the day when tens of thousands of employees could be furloughed at American and, and tens of thousands more at other airlines. He made the point that it's easier to cut later than add later. In other words, you can't just put in a flight at the last minute and, and fill it, but you could always cut a flight. Uh, so he would rather err on the side of scheduling too much in future months than too little. Now, Ben, We've talked in the past about the fact that American is simply a more domestic-focused airline than Delta and United. That's been true ever since the merger between American and U.S. Airways. So if international is suffering more than domestic, of course, Americans' overall schedule, counting international, might not be cut as much. Among just domestic flying, I mentioned before, United is planning to fly a little less than half as many domestic seats this August uh, as it did last August, according to that same Sirium schedule data. I see Delta is now back up to about 55% for August, American about 60%. So a statistically significant difference for American, but maybe not something as dramatic as the impression people might have gotten from Parker's comments. Now, one thing that has always characterized Doug Parker is his optimism. In every environment, he always comes off as more optimistic than his peers. You know, when times are good, he's, he's even more exuberant. When times are bad, he's less pessimistic. My question, Ben, is do you think American is doing something as philosophically different as the impression people might have gotten from the journal piece? Or is it more just a, a, a difference in style? Or perhaps just the, the, the difference you would expect because of the domestic versus international split and the fact that more of Americans' domestic network just supports other domestic flying, so maybe they don't have to cut as much because they're not they're not using that domestic feed typically to feed as much international flying. Good stat, Seth, and and, and a good question. I'll tell you what I think. I think that American is not a completely different strategy than the rest of the industry, but I think they're more aggressive than the rest of the industry around capacity. So they're thinking like the industry, meaning we've got to be somewhat judicious about how we add back and we don't want to add a lot of flights that are going to drain cash when we're in a real cash preservation mode. But they're looking at the clock ticking toward end of September when the CARES Act money runs out and they may have to furlough a lot of employees. And they're thinking, you know, we really need to get demand back. So his statement of let's go fly, for God's sake, I think is is said more out of frustration as well as optimism of saying, let's keep people working. Let's keep the economy going. Let's let's or let's get the economy going. Let's get back to some kind of normal. And I and that's what I heard in that 
in reading that statement yeah. that Doug was saying. And that that is optimistic, but I think it's also realistic of a company that has the most debt of any airline in the United States, that is dealing with lots of employees that they might have to deal with. And I'm sure that that's really tough on, on Doug in terms of what he might have to do with a lot of those employees. And he's just almost like pulling his hair saying, God, let's, you know, let's get this back together. And so I don't think American is thinking differently than Delta United or Southwest in terms of what's important, meaning get people comfortable and confident with flying again, manage cash flows well, build so that you're going to be strong when demand is back again and lead the recovery, don't wait for the recovery, right? I think the whole industry would subscribe to those kinds of things. And Americans just been a little bit more aggressive. Their head of network planning has been more vocal recently than he has been before. Most people didn't know who he was before. Anyone who follows the industry knows the name Vasu Raja now, right? Because he's been quoted a lot. And he's been very aggressive about where they need to add. And, you know, Dallas was the biggest... Um, airport in the world for a while because American had added back faster than anyone else. I think it still is. I think it may, it may still, still be. I'm not sure if Beijing is back up there, but I think, yeah, you go to DFW and it's going to look a lot closer to normal than Atlanta, for example, which is typically the. That's right. And, the, and so airlines like American and others do want to add that, that capacity back. They are doing things to try to build confidence in the consumer to say it is safe to fly and you can fly safely. They're taking different tacks at that. You know, some airlines blocking seats and others like American not blocking seats, right? Yep. So some people may say, well, some are trying harder than others on that, <laughs> on that point. But at the same time, airlines have had to start putting out their warn notices. And as most of our listeners probably know, the warn notices, that stand, that's an acronym. It stands for the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification. That's what WARN stands for. And it's a required disclosure when a company is going to either lay off or furlough more than a certain number of people within a certain amount of time or has the risk of that. They need to file that notice to give people awareness that this could happen. It's a disclosure requirement. Airlines don't do that to scare people. They don't do it as a leverage tactic. The law requires they do that. And they, and it's a timing issue and how big the issue would be that determines it. And we're now close enough to the end of September that airlines have had to start putting out their warn notice. So you'd seen American do it. You've seen United do it. You've even seen Spirit do it. And airlines are out putting those announcements out. So Doug's looking at, I've got to put out this announcement to say, I may have to furlough all these people, but don't make me do it. Let's go fly so I can keep all these planes in the air. Yeah. And and speaking of Doug Parker's airline, American uh, made news for for more hopeful reasons actually last week also. Getting together with an airline you're very familiar with, JetBlue, the two are going to be partners. So you've got American now, and this is interesting, with, we mentioned the, the big four airlines are American, United, Delta, and Southwest. And they basically can't do anything with each other as far as any kind of partnerships, uh, you know, close competitors, uh, regulatory reasons. You wouldn't, and I trust regulators wouldn't want to see them working together. But then the next two in the U.S. are Alaska and JetBlue. Both of those are significantly smaller in the Big Four, but significantly bigger than than anybody else. And of the Big Three, American, Delta, and United, one of them, American, now partnered with both of those, or at least pending regulatory review and all that, uh, JetBlue is coming, uh, which would complement the partnership 
with Alaska. So, so that's kind of interesting. And we disclose as always when we talk about JetBlue, Ben, that you're on JetBlue's board, and we understand there are things you can't talk about, but we understand we we appreciate you always being as as candid as you can be. Uh, interesting here, and you know, my mind first goes to, and this is code shares and it's frequent flyer reciprocity, and it's you know those kinds of things that that you would expect from. Uh, for, for a partnership, you know, maybe the two were able to work together in places like New York and Boston, JetBlue, a, a strong short haul, uh, short to medium haul airline, American with overseas flights. And, and, and it all sounds, and I, I've sort of, the, the few reporters in mainstream media asked me about it. I said, well, it's kind of a low risk, maybe medium reward thing. You know, it's not going to change the world from American's perspective, at least. Everything's always a bigger deal for the smaller airline, maybe JetBlue. But I always think about Delta and Alaska, and how that had so much pro- uh, promise. The Delta Alaska, and I mean, it was it was a very close relationship for a long time, and then ultimately, it, it didn't work because their interests just weren't aligned. You know, and it made perfect sense on paper. Delta, you know, Alaska short haul flights, feeding Delta long haul flights mm-hmm. in Seattle. You know, you connect from sure Spokane or wherever. Uh, it, it, you know onto the Delta flight to Tokyo or something. But the problem was that the, it just didn't, the math didn't work because the kinds of, you know, fares that Delta would have wanted to pay to get people onto Alaska short haul flights were so much lower to call pro rates, so much lower than what Alaska wanted because it could just build the flights more profitably with its own customers, all kinds of other things like that. Hard to get the interests aligned. I guess just kind of an open-ended question. I mean, was that was that a lesson for everybody? Or do you, do, you know, obviously, we don't know the terms of, of, of any of these deals. The, the exact terms are confidential. But do you think everybody, when they go to do one of these deals, thinks about that? And can you do it better? Or are there just structural issues with these deals that make them tough? It's a good, good, all good questions, Seth. You know, back in the 1980s, my very first job in the airline business was at American Airlines. And I worked in the group that was responsible for measuring profitability of the company. It was called Airline Profitability Analysis. That was the name of the group. Creative. And I, yeah, that's right. And I remember in my first or second year having a discussion with my manager at the time and some of the people I worked at the time is that, wow, this airline makes all of its money in New York. And if we didn't fly to New York, what would we be? Even though we had this big hub in Dallas – And like American didn't have the Miami hub yet. Right. Right. And we're still splitting Chicago with United. Right. So Chicago was challenged in that sense. And New York was just so profitable for American, mostly the transcon operations and a really big New York to Caribbean operation and things like that. And boy, that just has changed so much. And, you know, JetBlue took away. Americans, Caribbean operation out of New York, basically by flying it more efficiently and with lower fares and with a product people like better, right? (laughs) The transcons were hurt by JetBlue and uh, and, um, Delta building and United's, you know, Continental followed by United's growth in Newark. Newark. And, And the Northeast has just become more and more of a problem for American while JetBlue has strength in those cities. So the idea of partnering in cities like Boston and New York, 
um, I think is really good for both airlines because it gives JetBlue access to things, slots and gates that they wouldn't have access to without the deal, which means they can fly more than they otherwise would, keep more people employed, and that's great. And it gives American the chance to sort of be relevant again in the Northeast by partnering with them. So, kind of a, and, and in a lower risk way because they don't in need a lower the risk real way. estate and the airplanes and everything. Yeah, they, they just sort of try to have the milk without buying the cows, so to speak. That's right. So if you like competition in the industry and you don't want just Delta and United to dominate New York and you like employment in the industry and you want the ability to fly more airplanes, keep them employed, that's what this deal's about. And I think it's a potentially a good deal for both airlines. Um, but it is – a partnership. It's not a merger. And I think that's important too. And that always limits the the upside, uh, which is the trade-off for having, again, just sort of limited limited downside here. Is there anything about it do you th- that you think people, again, just from what's publicly observable, uh, that you think people missed? Any sort of underappreciated important thing? I mean, there's a frequent flyer partnership, which those frequent flyer programs, you can never overestimate how important they are in terms of, you know, when, when JetBlue's awarding Advantage Miles to its customer, I know you can't tell us what the, what the deal exactly looks like, but that's you know, JetBlue buying American Miles from an airline that needs money you know, to give to JetBlue customers, all sorts of things. Any, anything that you think media coverage missed in terms of the importance of the deal? Well, one of the, one of the generic things I'd say here, Seth, is when I teach my class at, at George Mason University, when we talk about code shares and alliances, and we have a whole class on this, One of the things that I try to stress to the students is you can't just look at a partnership and say it's good or bad. You can't say, is American BA a good partnership or is Delta KLM Air France a good partnership? You you can look at the network and say, I think the network's are synergistic or something. But you can't really say economically whether they're good without looking at the underlying deals. You have to look at what's called the pricing prorate deal. So if somebody buys a ticket between BA and, and, a, and American Airlines. For example, maybe they fly from London to Tulsa and they fly London to Dallas on British Airways and then Dallas to Tulsa on American Airlines, but they have a single ticket that they bought on the AA code share or on the BA code share that allows them to buy that ticket and have their bag connected for them. But how much of that revenue goes to American for the Dallas-Tulsa piece and how much goes to British Airways for the London-Dallas piece? In other words, if BA had to pay American $500 to get that person from Tulsa to Dallas, then maybe it's not such a good deal. Maybe that's a customer they would have rather not have. No, that's if right. Pay, if they paid 50 bucks, then, that, then maybe that was great because that's a customer they otherwise wouldn't have had. That's and, right. And it could yeah. be just the opposite for American. If they only sure. get 50 bucks, they say, I don't want that customer. But if they right. get 500 bucks, they say, let's let's start running ads for Tulsa in London. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that that deal is really important. The frequent flyer deal is really important. It's great that customers can earn and redeem awards in two different programs at the same time. The alliances are really good at that. But how the money is exchanged between the two determines whether it's good for one and bad for the other or good for both. So without those details, and those details are are far from being disclosed and anything, and I don't know if they'll ever be disclosed, right? It's hard to say, but I would trust that both American and JetBlue are doing what's best for their shareholders and their um, employees and their customers to try to strike the best deal they can in this partnership. And again, that's what seemed to go wrong with Delta and Alaska. And a lot of people were surprised because it just all seemed so perfect. I mean, it was a nice, it was a nice arrangement for customers. You know, this, this rather seamless 
deal in terms of honoring each other's elite benefits and all that sort of stuff. And you look at a map and say, wow, that's perfect. Because, right, Delta has these long-haul flights out of Seattle. Alaska has the short-haul feed. Put it together. This should be great. But what seemed to be the case, uh, reading between the lines, although, again, the terms of the deals are, are never public, is that uh, the, the, the math was just too far off. You, you know, that Delta, sure, it wanted that feed, but it wasn't willing to pay the equivalent. I mean, to use, I gave an exaggerated example, but the, the $500 from Tulsa to to uh, to Dallas, basically, Delta felt like that's what Southwest was asking for. And Delta felt that didn't work. And South and, and Alaska felt like Delta only wanted to pay the $50. And, and they're like, well, why should we take the 50? Because we can sell, we can get, you know, 250 by, by selling this ticket on the open market. And, and I think it was, the math was just too far off. And I, and I have to trust that everybody else, even though they don't know the details of, the, of that, they know what went wrong. And they're probably, as these new deals are signed, trying to come up with better alignment of, of, uh, of, of interests. I, I think that's right, Seth. And, you know, Delta sort of, um, made their own bed there too because they had the partnership and then they just started dumping capacity in Seattle and said, well, we'll just make this our hub now. And that had to just cause all kinds of rancor within that agreement. Oh yeah. Once that that started happening, it was, yeah, the the writing was clearly on the wall. Don't mess with Delta. Well, Ben, time for spirit passengers behaving badly. And yes, we do seem to have reliably reverted back to that segment title, spirit passengers behaving badly. (laughs) You're right, Seth. But first, we want to thank Hotel Connections. Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Visit hotelconnections.com and see how you can save money with your crew hotels. Well, after an uncharacteristic two or three weeks of other airlines passengers sharing the spotlight, this segment indeed seems to be back to what it was and in a big way this week. And I mean, Ben, last week's episode had just dropped when you and I saw this one. And like six and a half days before this episode, we already knew we had a winner or maybe more precisely a loser. Okay, actually three losers. It all started like so many bad things in the world in a gate area of Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport where, yes, a spirit flight was due to depart for Philadelphia. seems gate agents were about to start boarding, but then they announced there would be a delay. So everybody in the gate area calmly expressed some mild disappointment, noting it wasn't, after all, the fault of the gate agents. No, that's not what happened. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this incident during this part of the show. What did happen and what was visible in a video first broadcast by WPLG, Local 10 News, the ABC affiliate in Miami, was three women in their early 20s started throwing things at the gate agents. And I don't mean like pillows. I'm talking about like water bottles and food and shoes and metal signs from the gate area and cell phones. And then one of the women was accused of stealing the cell phone of one of the gate agents. I mean, if she needed a phone, maybe she just shouldn't have thrown hers in the first place. (laughs) Well, all three women were arrested and charged with battery, the kind of battery when you beat somebody up, not the kind that goes in your cell phone. Oh, yes. Speaking of which, one of the women was also charged with petty theft for stealing that phone. The employees suffered minor injuries. The airline praised them for managing to maintain their professionalism through all this. Ben, not that this would ever be okay, but for what it's worth – the flight was less than an hour and a half late. It wasn't. It wasn't like this is one of these nine-hour delays or something like that. Well, that's <laughs> that's an amazing story, Seth. And I, I just like rolled my eyes when I saw it. But I thought, you know, Spirit did the right thing this time, right? I mean, they were communicating with their customers. Yeah. 
The delay wasn't that long. And in fact, what happened just shows how terrible some people can behave and how, I don't know if it's undisciplined or entitled or what want to, what word you want to use, but for people to react that way because of a relatively short delay and take it out on relatively low paid agents at airports is just, it's, it says a terrible thing about our society. And I actually think Spirit Airlines came out looking okay in this yeah. because they were, they showed concern for their employees. They showed concern for the other passengers in the area. And the flight was only an hour and a half late, which I realize can be frustrating, but not throw metal at the gate agent frustrating. Yeah, you got to have some perspective here, especially right now with everything going on in the world. If you're fortunate enough to be healthy and flying on an airplane and all the rest of it, come on. Uh, well, uh, up next, thankfully, it's not something that happens often. But when it does, I mean, it's worse in some ways than even other deadly plane crashes. What are airlines doing to prevent it? It's that plus fine or whine when Airlines Confidential returns. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. Again, that's www.clearme.com dot com slash airlines. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next, but first, time for a listener question. This is a serious one. Uh, Joe in Tampa writes, how do airlines keep track of pilots who are mentally unfit to fly due to personal reasons or mental health disorders so that there's not a repeat of German wings flight 9525. Okay, Ben, this is a flight people, I'm sure a lot of people remember from several years back where it it was basically murder suicide. You know, one pilot, the first officer uh, locked the other pilot out of the cockpit. I think the other pilot had gotten up to use the, uh, to use the restroom and, and, uh, you know, ditched the plane and everybody died and it was terrible. And this has happened a few times over the years. I mean, it's thankfully very, very rare. There was that Egypt Air incident, uh, a, a few others over the, over the decades. And this really sort of brought up the issue of, of mental health. And, and, and obviously there are more modern understandings and attitudes now about mental health and how vulnerable just human beings are in general, not just airline pilots and, and, and all of that. And there were people saying, you know, are airlines doing enough to uh, screen pilots and should they be, you know, rescreening pilots? And I think some of that, I mean, one thing I remember about that crash was this is a pilot only had a couple hundred hours. So if anything, he had been evaluated more recently than most other pilots. It wasn't like he hadn't had a, just hadn't been um, evaluated in a long time because he was so new. So I, so I think people sort of missed the mark in that case when they said, well, maybe every so often pilots should be checked because this guy – you know, had been relatively recently. I don't know, Ben, is there anything more uh, that airlines can do? Or is this just one of those things that thankfully rarely, but that they are just going to miss once in a while? Well, I think they're going to miss it once in a while, not because they're not doing things, though. And the consequence of missing it 
in a pilot could be greater than, you know, if the Kmart employee decides yeah. to, you know, to, decides to do something terrible. But here's the thing. Pilots are human beings. They are talked to all the time. They're talked to by their union and by their company, usually, right, of both. They are required every six months to have a physical. So they're literally with a doctor every six months who does not only a physical physical, but a mental physical as well, talks about what's going on in their life and so on. Whenever a pilot has something known dramatic happen in their life, like a divorce or a death of a, of a loved one or something like that, the airline and the union always reach out quickly and talk to that person about whether they need some time off, whether they need counseling, whether, they, 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 whether the company or the union can help them in any way work through this difficult time. So the airlines and unions are, bo- are all very proactive about that kind of stuff. But all of that effect, you're seeing a doctor every six months, that people are talking to you all the time about your health and how are you feeling, that when they see something go bad in your life that is visible, like like I said, like a divorce or a death or something like that, they proactively reach out and offer services and things like that. If you're doing all that, I don't know what else you can do other than just make sure you're communicating regularly. But if you're going to have someone who's committed to say, this is what I'm going to do, I'm not going to say you can't stop them because maybe you can, and maybe you can identify things in advance, but it's harder if somebody doesn't want to get caught. Yeah. I guess it's almost like how, and obviously I'm the doctor, but you know, my understanding with just suicide in, in, in general is that it's, it's pretty hard to distinguish you know, there are lots of people with mental health issues and depression and, 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 and all the rest of it. And yet very few of them will commit suicide. And not only that, but it's not necessarily the most depressed people who will commit suicide. It's just sort of a separate thing that certain people kind of have it in them. And again, here, rough, you know, fortunately, it's, it is so rare. And I'm going to guess like on a per capita basis, it's been getting better over years just because it seems like it's just kind of something that happens like once a decade or less, and yet there's so much more flying now than there was in, in previous decades. So probably, I haven't tried to do the math on this, but it, but it probably has gotten better, and and for better or worse, but I mean mostly better. Just such a small sample size, so rare that it's that it's uh, that it's hard to, uh, to to study these things. But 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 obviously, uh, good at least that you have these modern attitudes that I think pilots all understand. You know, if, if you, like you said, if you need some time. Nobody's going to hold it against you, right? It's not you're not going to have the stigma now by by saying I, I I need a break because of this mental health issue, and 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 I have to imagine that that uh, is 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 on balance a good thing. You know, one other thing, Seth, I'll say is there's a there's a program that was that airlines use called SMS, the Safety Management System, and SMS is a really a culture within a company, but it's also a set of metrics and things you follow. And building a safety culture in an airline means that if a pilot doesn't feel right about flying a flight, they can say up to the time of departure, you know, I, I don't feel right, I shouldn't fly this flight, and they're not going to get fired for that. They're not going to, in fact, the airline's going to say, what can we do to help you as they quickly scramble to find another pilot that could maybe take that flight? And so employees, not just pilots, but it includes pilots especially, 
you know, they're encouraged to raise their hand if they don't feel up to it or they don't feel good or something's bothering them and they think it might distract them from their flight. Nobody's going to say, well, I don't care about that. Get on the plane and fly. In fact, just the opposite. They're going to say, don't fly. We'll find somebody else to fly a flight. Let's get yeah. you some help. Yeah, which is great. Well, well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air again, 305 305- Three seven nine seven four two nine. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Finer wine is next, but first we want to thank Seabury Capital Group, a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25 year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, financial services, and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. Beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, I do, Seth. Grace of Rancho Cucamonga, California. I love that name. Yeah. He's complaining <laughs> about American. Almost worth moving there just, <laughs> just to be able to say that, right? That's right. So Grace writes, again, for American, they say, my husband and I recently flew on American Airlines. They kept mentioning their new social distancing. So basically, it was a packed plane. Every seat was full. The only thing different is they don't have any food or drink. Unless you're first class, I guess then you can't spread COVID in order to maintain social distancing. They also did not enforce wearing a mask. So what's the point of denying food and drink when you fill up the plane and don't enforce your own rules? Now, we should note, Ben, this uh, complaint was June 18th. And normally it wouldn't make any difference in the world, you know, what month a complaint came in because we're just kind of talking about these these general issues that come up. But nowadays the world is changing so quickly that in fairness to America, the enforcement of the mask policy, you know, might be different now from what it was even a month ago. But that said, the masks were mandatory by then. I think by late April, basically, JetBlue, I remember, mandated it first sometime around April 20th or something. And then pretty much all the airlines, uh, with the exception of Allegiant, followed very quickly. So it would have been mandatory, wasn't universally enforced. It probably, is, I mean, it isn't universally enforced right now, but better now than it was then. All that said, just taking the complaint on its face. Uh, so, so we've got packed plane, difference in meal service, beverage service in the different cabins. Obviously, when you serve people, they're going to have to take off their masks and they're allowed to to, to, uh, to eat or drink. And that's true for economy passengers too. If they bring their own stuff on, they're allowed to take off their masks to, to just while they're eating and drinking. Uh, we talked about the controversy with Senator Ted Cruz, whether he sort of took advantage <laughs> of that and, and uh, took, had, a, had a broader definition of, 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 of drinking than uh, other people might appreciate. But anyway, so what do you, what do you think here? Uh, fine or whine? Oh, is this, was this uh, the airline or is this customer just whining? Well, given that Grace's real question is what's the point of denying food and drink when you fill up the plane and don't enforce your own rules? <laughs> given that, given that, I'm actually going to call this more of a wine, actually, and and maybe that surprises you somewhat. But American hmm. has a policy of we're going to fill all our seats. Yeah. 
And they've made that very public. They've gotten a lot of media grief on that, but they've, yeah. they've been defensive of that. And they said that's the right thing to do. They have said since this complaint, they have sort of re-upped on their enforcement of wearing masks, or at least they said they had. So I'll give American credit for saying that maybe initially they didn't enforce it that much, but now they are. The real point is denying the food and drink. The issue for that is that they don't want the contact between the flight attendant and the customer, and they don't want the transmission of items like a cup or a bag or something like that from the flight attendant to the customer, because that contact in and of itself could be a risky contact in terms of transmission. So that's why the food and drink has been taken out, not to save money. And so that makes sense. So in that sense, it's a wine. That said, American was clear about that they were going to pack their planes if they could. The one thing I'll give it not a whine is they should have enforced the masks in June. I think they're doing it more now. And if if you want to say it's a it's a fine for they made me wear a mask and should have made everyone, I agree with Grace on that point. On the other points, she kind of knew what she was getting into, I think. Yeah. Now, the point about first class, and obviously, that's again, this is these are that is the policy, and you know it when you when you fly that airline, and there are other airlines. In fact, Delta at first wasn't serving people in first class, although now, if I'm not mistaken, they are. So what about that? What, what about is, is there any hypocrisy there that if this is really all about health, uh, but there's this differentiation, uh, first class is, is, is still more than just a big front seat. Uh, well, airlines- I'll, I'll be at perhaps not, not a, a lot. <laughs> Gary Leff of uh, the View from the Wing blog made the point that, that American uh, actually – the complaint among first class passengers is that the service is so spartan at this point. Uh, they're not serving meals for rather long flights. So I guess it's all <laughs> compared to what? Compared to economy, it's yeah better compared to what first class usually is. It's not so good. But what? yeah, what about that? Well, I think the issue there is airlines know where their bread is buttered, right? And they know that the people sitting there are paying more either because they paid to sit there or they fly more regularly or bought a more expensive coach ticket that allowed them to upgrade. In any case, they end up paying more. And so what they want to do is say, we'll take advantage of the fact that we do have greater distancing in this cabin to deal with some issues to keep these people coming back. With so few people traveling, those are the people that they need to make sure keep coming back. So if they can do some things to make it a little better, where the distancing is possible in a cabin where the seats are just further apart, that's not necessarily the worst business decision in the world. Because roughly in first class, for what it's worth, roughly you sort of have a middle seat's worth of distance. I mean, it's two seats in the space of you know what would normally be three. And I realize that people could be you know closer to the armrest and all that, but uh, but generally that is true for what it's worth. The reality uh, that people are farther apart. Now, to be fair to Grace, she's not the only one who thinks this. If you remember, there was a senator in Oregon, Jeff Merkley, who had yep. a similar experience on American. American yeah, and, he, he, and he got so he, mad, he said, I want to ban the sale of middle seats. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. No, it's it's a it's 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 out there uh, for sure. And look, you can't blame people for feeling that way with with this deadly virus out there and 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 you can really see both sides of this right i mean it's 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 one thing when airlines are doing well and you say oh look at that greedy airline doing x right it's another thing when you know we talked earlier about doug parker uh i mean i mean there's a guy who you, know, you can think about think whatever you want about him but he's he's 
he's trying to save an airline. He's trying to save jobs, right? And so it is it is a really tricky calculation, right? When you can say I can if, if I sell all these middle seats, maybe that's a few jobs that 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 uh, that are going to get preserved. It's it's uh, there, there are no easy answers to any of this uh, right now. At least at least I'm not smart enough to have any. Maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah, <laughs> my co-host knows all the answers. But on final approach now, that does it for airlines confidential. Uh, please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429, or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And with a special thanks to Clear Hotel Connections and Seabury Capital, I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.